Oh Lord, come on, y'all. Just, just let it. Yeah, yeah. Whatever you wanna do, whatever. If you do it, it's gotta be right, Lord. It's gotta be right.
There's only one thing, only one thing that I regret about this period right now is that you couldn't feel what we feel right now. That you're not in this place understanding what's going on. Sometimes it's just pent up and you need to just let him have his way. Yeah, just speak to you. Donnie McClurkin would say, speak to my heart. My Lord, pull all the weeks, problems off of my shoulders, Lord. Push back all the expectations of the coming days. Move everything that's a hindrance to me just being with you right now. And then don't let me be the one talking, Lord. You just have your way. Have your way. Have your say. Tell me what you desire for me to do, Lord. Bless us in this place. Touch us to a person, Lord, so that we understand you're with us. And then we'll say yes to your will. Yes to your way. Lord, we bless your name. Lord, we celebrate who you are. Lord, we ask you to let the words of our mouth and the meditations that will come from my heart be totally acceptable in your sight. You're our Lord and our Redeemer. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask it all. Amen. Last Sunday of the month, and I ended a series last week talking about the family. The Lord led me to a space today to talk about us still, but from a different perspective. I would just ask you this question. How many of you think the Lord has been good to you? Maybe I should say it differently. How many of you know that the Lord has been good to you? Yeah. And it begs the question, if he's been so good to you, what does he require of you? What, what, what does he want from, from, from you? I mean, he's good because he's good. But surely he hasn't shared all this bountiful blessings for you and you alone. And so the Lord led me to a space, I think, of encouragement and remembrance today, perhaps in celebration of this month of awareness of the achievements of perhaps the most downcast people on the planet.
perhaps the people who have been rewarded the least and put in the most in this country and I dare say around the world people who for no wrong on their part we have simply been cast as different because of the degree of melanin in our skin. And for some people that means they think we are less than. And so for that we have been killed, mistreated, enslaved, defeated, cast aside, every manner of negative activity that a man can do to a man has been placed on our shoulders all because we're black. And so there are some who would wonder why do we have to celebrate a month of black activities? And the answer is because the majority would not only wipe us out physically, they would wipe us out historically. And so we've had to fight to let folk know about the goodness of black folk in this country. We've had to push to make sure our place and our face is not forgotten. And that's why we can't be immature enough to limit that discussion to the shortest month in the year. We got to tell it every day, everywhere you go. You got to tell about the sacrifices that have been made. But more importantly, and here we go, you need to tell about a God who has kept us and brought us all the way through that misery. You need to talk about a God who's been so wonderful to us that we who could be dragged to these shores could lead this country from its highest office. You need to talk about that kind of God. You need to not let folks think that our journey has been such that God has forsaken us. On the contrary, God has never forsaken us. He's never forgotten us. He's always been with us, and the ones who tell the story should be us. But it's not the first time that God has dealt with people who have been mistreated. It's not the first time in the history of creation that God has been faithful to a people and they get to a place and they forget to acknowledge that he's the one who did it. It's not the first time that God has been pushed to the side for us and I-ism. It's not the first time that we have tried to take credit for our own upcoming, for our own stand up when it's God whose grace has made us be able to get to this place. And I want you to know that had it not been for the Lord on our side, we'd have to ask the question, where would? Where would we be? And so today, I want to ask you, for all the good things that God has done for us, for all the blessings he's rained down on us, Tyrone, what does he require of us? 
What does he require of us? He directed the prophet Micah to ask that question of his people. What would the Lord have you to do? What do we do with all this bountiful blessings that God has given to us? And if you search your Bible and let your finger land in Micah chapter 6, when you go to some verses that are familiar enough in my house to see all the time, verses 6 through 8, you'll find that question being posed. What does the Lord require of you? What does he want you to do? What is it that he's giving you this goodness for? Is it just for you? Or is it for someone else? How do you deal with the bountiful blessings God has put in your hand? In fact, let me ask this question. How do you carry a dream? How do you carry grace? How do you say thank you, Lord, for how good you've been to me? And so that scripture takes us to a very special place in the history of Israel. But it only comes to light if we fast forward to the New Testament and we go into the gospel according to St. Mark chapter 10 and we pick up on a question, on a, di a, a series of, com on a conversation that's being had between Jesus and a couple of his disciples. Very interesting dialogue, Richard, in chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. I'm not going to read it. I'll paraphrase it for you today, and you'll get the point. But it's a very interesting question that brings to bear the thought that I'm trying to give you today, that we owe God everything, even though we don't give him credit for what he does. It seems that Jesus, if you go to the gospel according to chapter, I mean to Mark in chapter 10, Jesus was having a discussion with two of his disciples, James and John. James and John had this notion that when Jesus comes into his kingdom, they've decided for themselves that they ought to be the most significant disciples in the group. And that one should have the honor of sitting on the right hand of the king, and the other should have the honor of sitting on the left hand. And they have the audacity and the nerve to come to Jesus. I would imagine, Tyrone, that they came within earshot of the other disciples and they had the nerve and the courage to step to Jesus, the Son of God, and say, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, set us up like this. I'm on one side and my boy here is on the other side. Can you imagine if you were one of the other disciples and you overheard this conversation, how would you look 
at those two guys who have been traveling with you for the last two and a half plus years, how would you look at them and what must they think of you if they think they deserve to sit there? Now, it doesn't say anywhere in the scripture that they said that they wanted to sit there because they were worthy of sitting there. It doesn't say that they want to sit there because they had earned the right through their hard work to sit there. They simply wanted the honorific title of left-hand man or right-hand man sitting on Jesus' side, and they expected that Jesus was going to say yes. And Jesus looks at them at their request. One of them wanted to be the Secretary of State. And the other wanted to be the ambassador to the United Kingdoms. They wanted to be able to go out and say that they represent the king. And Jesus said, James and John, you don't know what you're asking for. No, no, you have no idea what you're asking for. He said, let me ask you if you can drink from the cup that I'm about to drink from. Or perhaps if you can go through the baptism that I'm about to go through. Because only under those circumstances might you come close to being able to have an answer to the question you just posed me. But let me tell you this, even if you were able to do that, sitting you on the right hand or the left hand is not my position to give. They didn't understand what they were asking for, and yet they wanted to. Fast forward to us right now. Don't point the finger at them and look down your sanctified nose at them for wanting something that perhaps they did not have a right to because that's what we do all day, every day right now. Oh yeah. Oh, our community is full, not just the black community, but this country is full of folk who want to be seated in high places. Full of people who think they belong to be in a spot just because they come from the right school, they come from the right family, they come from the right community, they know the right folk, and because of that, they want to be seated next to the man. And in some instances, without any qualification, they have the audacity of thinking they belong to be the man. Oh yeah, we've gotten to that place. Now as if that wasn't bad enough, we're raising a generation of children who have an expectation that under all circumstances, they have to be in charge. And they have to be the leader and the winner. They don't know a situation where losing is a part of what they do. How do I know that? Because we let them go through competitive activities, and at the end, we declare that everybody won. Everybody won, and everybody gets the recognition for winning. Nobody has to feel the pain of not winning or shall I say, losing. We have made life a participation sport, whether you deserve it or not. And that's why folk have the audacity to want to do nothing and still get to come up. Because that's the society we've placed them in. They realized when I was on T-ball in the fourth grade, I did nothing. 
I didn't even get up off the bench the whole season. But at the end of the year, I walked up and got my trophy just like everybody else who played, just like the dude who ran hard, slid hard, played hard. The whole time, I got the same trophy that he got. I got the same hamburger from McDonald's that he got. I got the same adulation from my family and friends that he got. They had the James and John syndrome. They sat on the right hand or the left hand and they still got the reward even though they didn't earn it. Why is this important? Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr. used this background story in one of his more famous sermons from Ebenezer in February of 1968, about 53 years ago, Martin King preached a sermon entitled The Drum Major Instinct. And he said, while we're pointing the finger at James and John, be careful, because there's some drum major instinct in all of us. All of us want to be recognized. Everybody wants to feel special. Everybody wants a little extra gravy on whatever life brings them. And he said, we got to be mindful that while we are all pushing forward, King said, to lead the band, our band already has a drum major. <laughs> and his name is Jesus. Spanish philosopher George Santayana said this um, famous truth, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And when we go through life not remembering who brought us over, how we got over, then we are destined to make the same failed choices that those before us have made. God said to the people before he rescued them from bondage in Egypt, be careful that you don't forget me. Don't forget the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. As horrible as slavery was, as constricting as slavery was, as awful as slavery was to, the, to those Hebrew people in Egypt and to those of us who came to America against our will, as horrible as it was, slavery kept us focused on the Lord. Slavery kept us looking upward to somebody greater than ourselves. And it was not until we got freedom that we stopped looking to him and started depending on ourselves. Just like the Hebrew children stopped depending on the Lord and started depending only on themselves. It wasn't long before they were out of Egypt, before they started complaining and grumbling against the Lord. Wasn't long, even though he was taking care of every single need they might have while they were in the desert. Wasn't long, even though they had every meal taken care of directly from heaven. They had DoorDash from heaven every day. 
But it wasn't long before they realized that they wanted more and they asked for more, even though he's bringing you angels, angels food to your tent every day. They wanted something else on the menu. They wanted meat on the menu. And they started crying, even though he was providing every single need. And can I tell you right now, God hadn't stopped providing us with every single need we have. The only problem is freedom allows you to look over yonder. And you can start seeing not only the stuff you need, but oh, there's so much more we want. And we start doing any and everything we can to get all the things that we want. And Micah, bless his heart, was the prophet who was a contemporary around the same time, that means, of Isaiah in terms of his writing. Micah's name is Who is Like God. And that name is so important because he brought a message, Tyrone, to the people, asking them, when are you going to start acting like the God who brought you over? When are you going to start doing what God inspired you to do? And that's the question that Jesus was putting to his oh-so-arrogant disciples. When you can do what I've done, you might earn the gifts that I've been given. But until that time, you don't really have a right to stand there and demand or even request what position you might have in glory. Micah describes not only in his writing what God is like, but he also takes the time to tell the people how they can be like God. And he frames his whole discussion. I love it. It's a lawyer's delight because Micah's whole prophecy in the sixth chapter, frames the discussion between God and his people as if God was putting the people on trial. And he uses the setting of the mountains and the hillside as a jury, those unshakable, unmovable witnesses of the glory of God because God created not just us, he created everything we know around us. And when you put us in that place, it's undeniable that an intelligent being created all of that. And they stand there as witnesses according to verses 1 through 2 of chapter 6. God is in the courtroom, and God comes in, and he testifies. He said, arise and plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's complaint, and strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint. Watch this now. The Lord comes in and files a complaint against his people, and he says, I'm going to have to deal with Israel because Israel has forgotten how they got over. I came today to tell you that God could file that same bill of complaint against us in this oh-so-bountiful country because too many of us have forgotten how we got over. How we got over. What's the, the Lord's complaint against them? He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I brought you over? And God sits there in his majestic place and rains down everything he's done to bring them out of bondage. How good he had been to them. Said, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. He, can, in fact, he could have put his hand on his side and said, didn't nobody do it but me. 
I didn't need no help bring you out, and I brought you out as a mother brings her chicks out. I carried you out on my wings, and I protected you every single day. But you act like you don't remember how you got over. I look around our communities today, and I look at folks who are complaining and grumbling about all the issues we have, but we've forgotten how we got over. We keep trying to throw the church away when it's the church that sustained us all the way. We keep trying to make the church irrelevant to our progress when we need to know that our progress would not have been possible had it not been for the Lord on our side. And so the Lord comes and he files his complaint, according to Micah, against the people. And Israel takes the stand. And they come with the same old feckless arguments that we have been making since then. Israel steps up and he says, God posed the question, what have I done for you? And if you and I aren't afraid to take the same question, let me ask you, what has God done for you? What has God done for you and through you and through your family? How good has God been to you? You need to start making a list. You need to check it twice. And you need to see if you were the one who allowed all that to come into your family. Remember how God protected you through every kind of ill. Let me, watch, let me, let me walk it down like this. We did come through slavery. We did come through slavery. We did come through Jim Crow. I hope you hear what I'm saying. We did come through those bad things, just like the Israelites went through Egypt, but God brought them out, just like God brought us out. We still have vestiges of those ills, but God is positioning us in places and stations so that we can bring down those shackles that still hold us back. And yet, instead of embracing what God has allowed to happen, instead of adopting his ways, we've started adopting the ways of our captors. We started doing the things to them, to one another. We started using tactics that are not good for our betterment as a people. We've started concentrating on our own progress to the detriment of our brothers and sisters' detriment. We stop working as a people and we just start, keep pushing individually. In other words, they got us fighting each other. And we can never move as a people forward when we're tearing down one another. That's exactly what happened to the Israelites. They'd always go in and turn a few of them. And those few would start acting just like the captors. God asked the question of his people, what can I do? What, 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 what can I do? I've shown you how much I love you. I've shown you how good I am to you. And he puts the Israelites in a spot that day because they have to turn around and say to him, Lord, it seems like and they act like they're mad at God. In their response, in chapter 6, they said, If I bow down myself before you, can I come to you with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? In other words, they're saying, there's nothing we can do that's good enough for you, God. 
They have the audacity to bite back at God in their conversation like that. What shall I come before the Lord with? This was a sound of bitterness and resentment that came from these folk. And I wonder right now, I wonder, I wonder, Red, how many of us are just angry? Angry at the Lord. I, that's all I see these days is folks just mad. Too much anger in our community. Too much bitterness. In Micah's courtroom, where there's a trial going on and God is chastening the Israelites for not being true to him, the Israelites have the audacity to claim that God can't be satisfied with anything they do and they can never make him happy. They have the audacity to say that anything we do is not good enough. And so God instructs Micah to simply ask the question that I asked for you today. What does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord want me to do? That's the question. What, what does he have, what would he have us to do to please him? What, 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 what would he want me to do to show him how I love him? The Israelites proclaimed that God wanted too much. That God wanted things that they couldn't do. In fact, let me go this far and say, the Israelites took their argument to such a point in Micah that they thought it wasn't them that should change, but it should be God who should change. And so God instructs him to write. Oh man, what does the Lord require of you? He's already shown you. You act like God hadn't shown you what he wants you to do. You act like God hadn't laid the blueprint out, Michael writes, on how you should conduct yourself. And so you answer the question yourself, oh man, what does the Lord require of you? And he tells them clearly, the blueprint is already there for you. He simply has already shown you that you got to learn how to do justly. Act fair to people. Treat folk right. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Do justly. He said you got to treat folk like he treats you. Stop cheating folk and mistreating folk and that's not God's way. Treat people the way God treats you. Proverbs 4 and 23 said, God told him, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life. Not only does he want you to do justly, but he said you need to love mercy. Don't just show mercy, but love to show mercy. Give other people the same measure of mercy that you want me to give to you. Mercy conveys a sense of love, kindness that's not expected. In other words, surprise them with your love. When they least deserve it, give it to them. That's what mercy is. 
It brings to mind the good Samaritan. He never expected to be the hero of the story. And that's why it was mercy that he took care of folk who would mistreat him. The prodigal son never expected to be invited back into his father's house the way he had been treated. But the example of that father was under all circumstances, love your babies. Bring your babies home. Forgive your babies of what they've done. Jesus put a book in on it when he left the cross. And you ought to be saying it every time you have a situation. You ought to look at him and say, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. Do justly. Love mercy. And then you got to learn how to walk humbly with God. Stop not walking with God. Stop snatching your hand out of God's hand. Grab his hand and hold on. Hold on. Remember that he is our God. Why? Because he made us his children. If you keep in mind that he's our God, then you don't have to act humble. Too many folk have to tell folk that they're humble. I got problems when folk tell me that they're humble. Humility shows the last thing that ought to come out of your mouth is I'm just trying to be humble. You're not. You're trying to make me think you're humble. Yeah, when a man forces himself to do it, it by their definition is not humility. Because that man enforcing himself to do it has forgotten that he was never in charge in the first place. God is the one who's been in charge. He's simply being a vocal hypocrite to the language of humbleness. Humility comes from your heart. It's an outflow of your life. Every act that you perform according to Spurgeon speaks of your humility. Guess what? Humility gets on folks' nerves because they see you as a mirror of themselves. And at a point in time when you would puff yourself up and you don't, they get mad at you because they thought under those circumstances, I would. But an humble man disregards that. He continues simply being who he is and letting other people deal with the consequences of it. Humility is who you are. Humility is who you are all the time. Humility is how you live, how you talk, how you give, how you love. That's humility. It's not for a season. It's for a reason. It's because you realize that God has been so good to you. I have no need to pat myself on the back because God is all the things I need. And so Spurgeon, in his writing on Micah's message for today, taught us how to walk humbly. He said, walk humbly when you're spiritually strong. Walk humbly when you've got a lot of work to do. Walk humbly in all your motives. Walk humbly when you're studying God's word. Walk humbly when you're in your trials. Walk humbly when you're in your devotions. Walk humbly between you and your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Walk humbly when you're dealing with sinners. 
There's not a time in your life when you shouldn't remember that it's not you who keeps you, but it's the Lord. What does the Lord require of you? He requires you to act justly. He requires you to love mercy. And he requires you to walk humbly and stop acting like he hadn't shown you. Oh man, exactly what he expects you to do. He's given it to us. Now go forth and do the same thing. Micah. Micah asked a question today that I'll end with, with you. The only time that God won't deal with you in a manner when you push back on him. He won't curse you. He loves you too much for that. He never cursed Israel even though they turned their backs on him. But when you bring that sin on yourself, when you simply won't acknowledge who he is and what he's done for you, he'll simply give you the consequences of your own decision. That's what he'll do for you. You decide that you're enough, then God will allow you to continue with that methodology that you're enough. You decide you don't need him, God will let you be your own God. But I can tell you right now, you're making an eternal mistake if you don't let him be the Lord of your life. How do I know he loves me in spite of me? Because when I wasn't worthy of anything, God saw me groveling. When I was full of myself, God saw me needful. When I thought that I had everything together and in fact thought I was progressing, God realized that in my arrogance I was only regressing. And God rescued me from that boat that was on its way to a sure hell. Yeah, he allowed me to get to a place when I wasn't enough and I simply said, Lord, help me. And as quickly as I could get it out of my thoughts, his son was there to rescue me. His son came. I can tell you that he came to humanity, but I want to tell you that he came to me. He came to Donnell and he picked up Donnell from the place that he was and he put Donnell on the right path. And all he asked me to do was to follow him, have faith in him. He asked me to do justly, love mercy. He told me what he wanted me to do was simply be like him. He's already shown me. The blueprint is there. And he told me to walk humbly before him. Every day of my life, I'm trying to do that. It's hard every day. But it was so much harder when I was walking the other way. I came to invite you to take the same pathway that I've decided to take. As a child, I learned to sing the song. As an adult, I learned to live the song. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Do you know him? Do you know him in the free pardon? Free, free pardon of your sin. Free because Jesus paid it all. Free to me because Jesus paid the price. Free to me because Jesus shed his blood. Do you know him? If you do, get on this pathway. 
learn to do what God wants us to do. That's what he expects of us.